Our Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of it. Thank you that it's alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces, Lord, even to divide the joint and the marrow. And Lord, that which is so profound. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, each one of us in our particular needs, our problems, the issues that we are facing, that you would both encourage us and rebuke us, but above all, that you would transform us to the image of Jesus, that you would use your word. Lord, speak, and may the voice of the living God, not the voice of a man, be heard. But we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hawaii has been in the news as of late because of the volcano. Uh, but I'd like to draw your attention to something else about Hawaii. There are some ancient ruins there. Uh, the ruins of Pu'u Honua. And if you're from Hawaii uh, and you know I'm messing that up, well, I'm sorry. So... Um, It was described, these ruins are described by Mark Twain in the 1800s this way. He says, It was a vast enclosure whose stone walls were 20 feet thick at the base, 15, 20 feet high, an oblong square, 1,040 feet one way and a fraction under 700 feet the other way. What he was describing um, was a place where the Hawaiians would go when they would flee for refuge. See, one Hawaiian back then, many years ago, broke a, a kapu, a sacred Hawaiian law. The offender was automatically sentenced to death unless he or she could run to this city of refuge. So once inside the city, he or she was safe, protected from judgment. There in the city was the, the kahuna, the big kahuna, the high priest. So it's kind of strange. We use that word differently, don't we? But there's the high priest. And the high priest would perform a rite of purification, declare forgiveness and innocence, and set the person free to begin a new life. I find it interesting. I read that and I go, wow. Because when we come to Joshua chapter 20, what is it that God does? He's establishing these cities of refuge. So where did the Hawaiians get it? They got it from the scriptures. Interesting. See, we've been looking at how the Israelites, God has led the Israelite people into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. They have conquered the other nations, and uh, they've divided the land according to the territories. So each tribe got a bit of the territory in the land of promise. However, if you read ahead and, and, and you know the other parts of Scripture, you understand that the tribe of Levi didn't get their own territory, right? Why? Because the Levites were priests, and they were to minister to all the tribes. And so what... What God had instituted for the Levites, for this particular tribe, is that there would be 48 cities scattered throughout all the tribes of Israel, both east and west of Jordan. And six of those 48 cities were the cities of refuge. So if you can put up the slide. Okay. So what you see in this slide is there three cities of refuge east of the Jordan and three west of the Jordan. 
and we'll, we'll look at more uh, detail about those cities. But I just want you to have that in mind. So, uh, so you see they're, they're tr- they, they try to put them in places where people can access them, as we'll see in a little bit. And you see the names of those cities in verses 7 and 8. Uh, you know, Kadesh, Shechem, uh, Hebron, or Kiriath Arba, and then, and then the other three cities. Now, what we find in chapter 20 is that God explains why the cities of refuge are needed. Okay? And let me, let me summarize it for you like this. Okay? This is basically this, this chapter. And you see it really beginning in verse 3. If a man accidentally kills another man. Okay, so this is not murder. This is not a situation of murder. But a man accidentally kills another man. And that man who accidentally kills this other man is called, in at least the English Standard Version, a manslayer. Okay, just keep that in mind. A manslayer. The manslayer is to run to the city of refuge. Why? Because behind him, he knows there is the avenger of blood. The one who's going to come and avenge the blood that was shed. So the manslayer is to run to the nearest city of refuge. He's to go to the gate of the city. And why the gate of the city? Because that's where the leaders and the elders are. Okay? And he's to present his case there. He's going to say to them something like this. Look, the avenger of blood is, is right behind me. He'll be here in ten minutes. All right? And you need to know, I killed somebody, but it was an accident. So there's a preliminary hearing with the elders. And afterwards, there's a hearing, a trial, if you will, by the congregation, before the congregation. And if the man is considered to be innocent of murder, then he's allowed access into that city of refuge... The people are to provide him a place to live, preserve his life, protect him, and he's to stay there until the death of the high priest. Okay? That's it. Now, here's the question for you. Why does God do this? I've been wrestling with this all week long. Why does God do this? And I think from a general perspective, we can say, well, because God has brought them into this land of promise, right? This promised land. And they represent God in this land. And they are to be what? A light to the nations around them. And who is this God like? What is He like? He's a just God. And as a just God, He wants His people to reflect justice in the way they treat one another. So you can see why. And, and you can look at other par- parts of Scripture where it said if there's blood that's shed, what it does, if it's shed unjustly, it pollutes the land. It defiles the land. Now, so what I want us to do is consider, under this big umbrella idea of the justice of God, why or what these cities of refuge teach us. And we'll see that they teach us about the sanctity of life, the kindness of God, and the satisfaction of justice. Now, you might be wondering, okay, this is very interesting. I'm going to learn about the cities of refuge. That's great. But what does that have to do with me? Let me ask you a question. You ever burdened by your guilt? You ever feel shame for the things you do or fail to do? Do you ever fear that your secret sins will be uncovered one day? Do you ever have this nagging sense of fear that just doesn't leave you? Do you ever feel condemned and judged? 
If you're honest about it, and I think we all have to be honest and say, yes, that's true of me, then you need a city, a refuge. No, not a city. You need God to be your refuge. The Lord is our refuge, our city of refuge. So you wonder, what does this have to do with me? You and I who are sinners... He's telling us here, here is a place to go. Here is a person to whom we are to run. And so if you're a sinner, this is for you. If you're not a sinner, I'll see you in heaven. (laughs) Right? So, let's look at this first of all. You see, how God views life. And the way God views life is just God. How does He view life? He says, life is sacred. The sanctity of life. When a murder occurred in the Scriptures, God established that an avenger of blood would avenge the death of that person that was killed. You know, there was no police force. There was no 911 that you called, right? Uh, There was, you know an avenger of blood. Now, it sounds really weird. I mean, say, the avenger of blood. Some of you are imagining, you know, because you, you watch a lot of, you know, gory movies, and you imagine, imagine this sinister, ominous, black-hooded person. You can't really see their face, face, and they're going around with a sword, just kind of stabbing everybody, right? No, that's not what's to come to your mind. Uh, the avenger of blood was actually a relative of the person killed, for the most part. Uh, it was a kinsman. If you're familiar with, the, uh, with Boaz in the book of Ruth, do you remember Boaz is described what? As a redeemer? It's the same word. It's, it's really fascinating. What's Boaz? He's a kinsman redeemer. The same Hebrew word. It's translated here as avenger. And so he's a, it's a relative, all right, who is to avenge the blood that was shed. And you can see this uh, in Deuteronomy 35 and Deuteronomy, rather Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. So this avenger blood was like the police and the execution are all wrapped up in one. Okay. That's in the case of murder. But chapter 20 is not talking about a, a murder. It's talking about an accidental killing. What we would call manslaughter. Okay. Why? Because you see throughout the scriptures here, this passage talks about it's unintentional, unknowingly, without hatred. All right? So that's, that's really important uh, for us to keep in mind. Deuteronomy 19.5 uh, gives us an example. And I just thought I'd bring a little show and tell. Because uh, <laughs> this is the moment that some of us wake up. All right, so... The example in Deuteronomy 19.5 is this. Two neighbors, they go into a forest with an axe. They're going to cut down wood. All right, That's all they're going to do. Their neighbors that get along with each other, they're going to cut down some wood. They're swinging their axe. I mean, there's a little hatchet. It's not going to take a long time to fell a tree with this. All right? But imagine this. That one guy swings his axe and the head, this part of the axe, flies off and hits the neighbor on the head and kills him instantly. Now, what's that person to do? Well, the scripture says, you know what? You run. <laughs> you run. Because as soon as you know, his brother, his cousin finds out about it, he's coming after you. 
right? So, uh, and he doesn't deserve, so this manslayer doesn't deserve a murderer's punishment. There's no hatred, no premeditation. It was accidental. But here's the danger. Here's the problem. Okay, and God understands this. Is that the avenger of blood, this relative, okay, he's going to go after, you know, his relative has been killed. And in the heat of the moment, he's upset, he's angry, whatever it might be. He's not going to take the time to try to figure out all the facts of the case, is he? He's just going to go out and avenge the blood that was shed. And if that were to happen, this would not be justice. This is what God is saying. It would not be justice. Rather, a great injustice would be added to tragedy. You see what God is protecting His people from doing? See, God knows our hearts, my dear friends. God knows that left to ourselves, left to the natural inclination of your heart, unless the Holy Spirit penetrates deeply into us this grace of God, we are prone to unrighteous, angry vengeance. It happens. It happens outside the church and in the church. And so what God does, He establishes these cities of refuge to where the manslayer could go. I'm sure it's been a while since you've read from 2 Samuel, but if you read there this afternoon, 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. We have a very interesting example there. There are two uh, commanders and chiefs, generals. Uh, Abner is one uh, with Saul, with King Saul. And then uh, Joab is the other under King David. The, The kingdom is still not united at this point. Now what happens? They are in battle. These two generals are in battle, one against the other. They're men, all right? Now in in that battle, Abner kills, not really self-defense, Joab's brother, Asahel. He kills his brother. You can read that, okay? Now, you would think, okay, that's not premeditated murder. This isn't a battle. This was an unjust killing, all right? But in chapter 3, Joab calls Abner to, this is fascinating, Hebron. Hebron is one of the cities of refuge. And he's there in the midst of the gate, and what does he do? He, Joab, kills Abner, and it says that he was avenging the blood of his brother Asahel. But it was wrong, because he's right there in the gates of the city of refuge. But you understand, it's wrong to seek vengeance. Oh, but we do it with our words. We do it with our actions. And we kill people in our heart. You see, God knows that about us. And so He knows that these cities, a place of refuge is necessary. See, what God is saying, one of the big lessons of this is that life is sacred. It's valuable. Why? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So you and I are not free to take somebody else's life. God gives life. God takes it away. Now, God has established a civil magistrate, we know that, who can avenge. It's interesting. Read Romans 13. uses that language of avenge. But you and I don't have that prerogative. You see, 
Human life is sacred, and the life of the manslayer is valuable, so he's not to be killed unjustly. His life is to be preserved, but also the slain man's life is of great value. See, the manslayer, although unintentionally killing him, right, he has to carry the consequences of shedding blood nonetheless. Because how long is he going to be in the city refuge? Until the death of the high priest. And that might happen one year from now. It might happen 40 years from now. So what does living in a city of refuge feel like for a manslayer? It feels like prison. Because he cannot go home. As one commentator says, life made in God's image always remains exceedingly sacred. And we work this out, brothers and sisters, dear friends. We work this out in our lives. And we live in a world, and we think about it, where millions of babies are aborted. We live in a world where people are trafficked for sex and labor. In a world where euthanasia is being promoted for the elderly as a good option. And we, who are image bearers of a just God ought to work and pray and act with this understanding that life is sacred. You see, we ought to be, as God's image bearers, the ones that would act and pray on behalf of those children who are defenseless. We ought to be the ones that would be adopting children. And you know, as and I don't know if you know this, but in our, one of the line items in our budget as a church, we have a line item there for adoption. You're setting aside money. Why? So if any of you want to adopt a child and you don't have the money, you say, look, as a church, we're behind you. Go and do it. We as a church need to be acting and praying against those who perpetrate abortion. Yes, we need to be the ones who get involved. Even with Gaza, the court-appointed special advocate, like Christy and Phoebe has done. We ought to be, you know, on the forefront of foster care for our kids. Meeting life's basic necessities for refugees and immigrants. See, we, no matter where you are politically on the spectrum, no matter what you think about the immigration thing, you have to come to this foundational truth that the person... His life is of value because they were created by God. You and I do not have the option of determining, well, this person has value, this person doesn't have value. This person can live, this person doesn't live. God establishes that. He's the just God. And we, His people, are to reflect His justice. You know, back when the Christians lived in the, during the Roman Empire... You know that the Roman people practice infanticide. That means they abandon their children. They just cast their useless, unproductive children onto the trash heap. And you know what the Christians did? They went and rescued those children. They took them off of the trash heap, brought them home, and raised them as their own. So I ask you and me, what are we doing that reflects the sacredness of the life that God has given to us? We who are image bearers. And personally, can I ask you something else? Have you ever felt insignificant? 
Have you ever felt worthless? Have you ever had somebody tell you, you know, you really don't amount to much? And sometimes you feel that, right? Sometimes you feel the weight of that. And you wonder, you know, why am I even here? And some of you have wrestled with this and it's gone through your head and your soul and you just thought about taking your life. And I want you to hear this from the God who made you for Himself. That when God made you, originally made you in all humanity, He made you to be of great worth and significance. He made you as He made all humanity originally. And He said what? It was very good. So if you hear all this garbage from other people, or even feel the inner voice inside of you saying, I don't amount to much, you hear God say to you that you are great worth and significance. We know that's not the totality of your story in your life. But that's a foundational truth. See, and I wonder how much of that sanctity of life influences our view of justice. Or is our view of justice truncated and eliminates the sanctity of life? So, the cities of refuge teach us the sanctity of life, but also the kindness of God, secondly. These cities of refuge, whose idea was it? It was God's idea. It was God's idea. As a matter of fact, we see in the text that God had previously spoken to the Israelites through Moses, and you can read about that in uh, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 4 and 19. Because, see, these, these cities of refuge re- reflect not only God as just, but they also reflect the kindness of God. The kindness of God. See, from Deuteronomy 19.3, we learn that uh, these cities of refuge were to be accessible. There's an accessibility uh, characteristic of these cities. If you remember on the map, there's these three cities on either side of the Jordan River. That's why. So you didn't have to try to cross the Jordan. It's pretty tough. You know, too bad for you if you kill somebody accidentally while it's in flood stage. You're not going to get across. You know, so, so I, I, I think about that. I go, wow, the kindness of God. Now, and it's interesting because if one, one scholar said, you know, there is no city was so far away from you that it was more than a day's journey. Okay, maximum, the greatest distance would be a day's journey, 26 miles, 28 miles max between those cities, depending on, uh, you know, your map. All right. So, so God wasn't making it hard for that person to go to the city of refuge. Extra biblical uh, sources tell us that these roads to the cities of refuge had to be well maintained. They had, to, they had to clear the roads, all right? No obstruction. And they had to find, you know, they didn't, couldn't construct a road that kind of just wound all over, all through Palestine. No, it had to be the most direct route to the city of refuge. If there was a ravine or a river, they had to build a bridge over it. So you had access to the city. If on the road there's another crossroad, there's an intersection, there's a fork... They were supposed to construct a sign, all right, that said refuge, so that you would not go the wrong way. 
It's just fascinating. God does not want you to get lost. He wants you to know where to find refuge. But do you see the gospel in all of this? You see, oh, wow, you look with those eyes, you go, you see what God is doing. And the cities, the cities were built on hills so that at a distance you could see them. Right? And here's the best one. The gates of the city were never locked. The gates of the city were never locked. Can you imagine you just kill your neighbor accidentally? You know, you run to the city and it's 6.05. And they just closed it at 6 o'clock. And they said, no, we don't open until tomorrow, 7 a.m. I mean, <laughs> that's not very kind, not very gracious. Oh, the kindness of God. The kindness of God to provide a place of refuge for us who are messed up, who sin, and who need safety and protection. Also from this character of God's kindness, there's a principle of justice that's established. And it's this, that there's an assumption in favor of the accused. An assumption that they're not guilty. Right? They're not automatically considered as guilty. So, the manslayer runs to the city of refuge. And what does it say? He's to be protected by the elders. In verse 5, he's not given up to the avenger. They can't give him up to the avenger. avenger comes up, he says, hey, I want... You know, to avenge my cousin's blood. He says, no, not yet. Not yet. You can't. Why? There has to be a trial. They have to hear the case. First, the case has to be, has to be heard. So there's not... You know, they don't presume the person to be guilty of murder. This is hard. Why? Because I ask myself, is there any room in my idea of justice? Is there any room for kindness? Is there any room for not presuming somebody else who has offended me to be guilty automatically? You and I wrestle with that, don't we? Somebody offends you. Somebody does something against you. And you stand up on your righteous platform. And you, what do you do? You and I do this. We make assumptions. We try them in our mind, in our hearts. We condemn them. And we execute them in our heart. We've just killed them. And you say, how have I just killed them? Well, Jesus says, we commit murder when you hate somebody. You see... You and I sometimes assume the worst of other people. And there's a sense of, we feel so just. But I think I could make a good case that when we think about the justice of God, it's never divorced or at odds with the kindness of God. They come together. That's how you and I have experienced it. And we'll see that clearly in Christ Jesus. Some of us have a big view of justice. We are people who say, you crossed me. You did this wrong. You broke the law. Guilty. End of conversation. I've done that. I've done that with my kids. I've done that with my wife. 
But you know, I realize, do I want to be treated like that? Do I want God to treat me like that? You know, see, you notice in the text, we may mention it, but let me highlight it again, that God takes into consideration motive. Not just, you know, what seems to be the broken law, somebody's death, but motive, the intent. And we see throughout, this happened. In this, in this case, the example is unknowingly, without hatred in the person's heart, without intent. Isn't that what Jesus taught us about motives? It begins in the heart. And God looks in the heart. And you and I can't see somebody else's heart. But So it raises the question, is there room in our understanding of the justice of God for these issues of motive, of, of taking some time to say, well, tell me, what are you wrestling with? Tell me, why did you do this? What's going on? And extend the kindness of God. You know why? Because if you and I treat others just pure justice we have to think how has God treated us God did not treat us with pure justice we'd be dead we'd be dead but God has dealt with us not ignoring his justice he's dealt with us justly in Christ but also with kindness and mercy This is what is to characterize the people of God in the land of God. That will be light and salt to the nations around us. So if you're cruel, if you're harsh when somebody does something wrong against you, ask the Lord to soften your heart with kindness as even He has shown it to you in Christ. And finally, the cities of refuge teach us about the satisfaction of justice. Although the manslayer didn't deserve the death penalty, as a murderer would, yet there's a sense in the text that atonement or satisfaction for uh, justice was still needed. Remember, the manslayer had to stay in the city of refuge. He might have had a desire to go visit his family. He hadn't seen his family in who knows how long. If he were to leave the city of refuge before the death of the high priest, the avenger of blood could come and rightly take his life. All right? So he has to stay there until the death of the high priest. So here's the question. What is it about the death of the high priest? What is it? What's the connection between the death of the high priest and the freedom that this manslayer experiences? There are various interpretations of this, but, but I think one that makes the most sense is that the unintentional killing of this manslayer is atoned for by the death of the high priest. That somehow the death of the high priest satisfies the claims of God's justice. You can see, the high priest dies, the manslayer goes free. You see the connection? The high priest dies, the sinner goes free. Jesus, the high priest, dies, and you and I, sinners, go free. Do you see how this points us 
in a glorious way to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews labored long and hard to describe Jesus to us as that glorious, holy, innocent high priest who offered himself up at the cross. In Hebrews 2.17, he says that he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This chapter illustrates for us a person who's innocent of murder. But we know that ultimately, when the high priest, Jesus, goes to the cross, it's not because any one of us is innocent. We are all guilty. As I said, we've all have hated. We've all committed murder in our hearts and a host of other sins. The scripture says that there's no one righteous, no, not one. We're all guilty of sin. We all deserve death. But the kindness of God. But the kindness of God. That he would send his son. Who would do what? At the cross of Calvary and through his life. He would satisfy divine justice. Jesus did that. Because He took upon Himself the penalty for our sin. He took upon Himself what we should have suffered. He suffered it. He was. His, his blood was shed. When our blood should have been shed. No, His blood was shed in our place. He died the just for the unjust. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. To bring us to God. So satisfying divine justice. Oh, but the kindness of God, when He satisfies divine justice, what does He extend to us but the mercy? And like the great kahuna, right? The big kahuna who gives that Hawaiian his forgiveness. Oh, this great high priest says, because of what I done, because of my bloodshed, because the penalty I bore in my body, because of my death, my sacrifice, you go free, forgiven of your sin, declared innocent, not guilty. Go and live a new life. You're a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ. Go and live it in His strength and in His power and by His Spirit. That's what Jesus really in some way who is our refuge and who are our great high priest. This is what he has accomplished for sinners like you and me. The psalmist in Psalm 85.10 says, Love and faithfulness meet. Together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. There you have it. Righteousness, justice, and peace. The kindness of God coming together in the person of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. My dear friends, we're guilty of lots of things. And maybe you have um, chasing behind you your conscience that has been nagging at you for a long time and convicting you of sin. Maybe it's not your conscience. Maybe it's somebody else that tells you just how rotten you are. And, you know, 
probably true, but you don't want to face up to it. And you're living with that. And maybe you have this, this guilt that's been nagging, that's just haunting you, right? This shame. Maybe you just have patterns of sin that are just, just on your heels all the time. And, you've been, and you're fighting against this sin. It just seems to, to want to drag you down and just conquer you. And you go, How, who will deliver you? Who will deliver you from this body of sin? As the Apostle Paul says... And God says to you and to me, because the worst thing that you could have over you is the wrath of God. And God says, you find refuge in the place that I have designated in Jesus Christ. He is the city of refuge. He is the person of refuge. He is the high priest. He's the one that we are to run to. He's the one that we are to flee to. Why in the world do you hide your sins? Why do you present and live life throughout the week as if you don't sin? When was the last time you confessed your sin? Is it because you need no high priest? Because you need no refuge? Oh no. We need a refuge today, tomorrow, the next day, every day of our lives. And God is not begrudging to you and to me. He's not chintzy about extending mercy and kindness to all who would ask. Will you ask? This past week I received a call from a young lady. Uh, Didn't know her. She says, I want to talk to a priest or a pastor. I said, well, you got them both right here. I'm a priest and a pastor. You know, kind of set people at ease. <laughs> Don't explain it, you know. I just kind of just throw it out there. She says, what do you need? She says, can I come over to your church right away? I says, uh, well, we don't have a church building. Here's a plug for a church building. Okay. Um, I said, we don't have a church building. I said, but I, I, look, I'm really tied up. I can meet with you in a couple hours. She says, no, I need to, I need to talk and see a priest or pastor right now. And so she hung up. I, I just felt disturbed by, by that conversation. So I prayed and I called her back. I said, listen, I don't know what you're thinking, but because in my thought, before I called her back, I was thinking that she was going to take your life. And so I asked her, I said, are you thinking about doing harm to yourself about taking your life? She says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And she says, let me tell you why I'm calling. About a month ago, I went to a medium, a psychic, curandera. And uh, I got a, uh, an amulet. You know, I went there because I wanted good luck. You know, I wanted to get some money. And, uh, but ever since then, for the last month, there has been e- what she calls evil spirits in her house where she lives. And her cousin and her aunt have seen these spirits. And one night, she was in bed, and she just felt the sheet in her bed just rise up and something touch her stomach. She was scared to death. And she's saying to me, I need freedom. I'm scared. So needless to say, it's just come over to the house. <laughs> and I'm, you know, she's coming. I'm praying. I says, Lord, this is beyond my seminary training. All right? This is, this is you're taking me to new territory. And, and I'm praying. I says, Lord, would you lead? And uh, so we, we spend the next three hours talking. And she tells me the story. She goes into more detail. She asks me all kinds of questions about Jesus. And, and she just expresses how she feels so scared because she's being pursued by evil. It's very real. And she feels like she's going to get hurt, get killed. 
And at one point, she, she's wearing this necklace with a crucifix on it. And she points to it and she says, Will this protect me? Right? Will this protect me? And I says, No, that symbol will not protect you. You won't find refuge in the symbol. You'll find refuge in the reality. You'll find refuge in Jesus. But I pray you'll find refuge in Jesus. But I've made promises to do better and never go back to the curandera again. you find refuge in Jesus alone. There's no other place where you can go. You have no other hope but Jesus. Sinner. Sinner, where have you been? Where have you fled to in the past? Today. Today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Today. Flee to Jesus. Come, sinner. Poor and needy. Weak and wounded. Sick and sore. Jesus ready. Stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms.